Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is sponsored by Wick Realty. Wick helped me buy and sell a home a couple of years ago and I'm recording this in it right now. This is the home I've been living in and working in and recording podcasts in during the pandemic. So I'm really grateful for that. In a city filled with realtors and a lot of real estate companies, WIC really is one of the best. They're invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you are buying, if you're selling, building, if you're looking for investment property, if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Today's guest is Jason Herrick. Jason and I have known each other since we were kids. He and my wife... Amy graduated from high school together, Uh, but Jason also has a really interesting Amarillo story. He left here when he went to college, and then after college, he went to work in Europe during the tech boom, uh, working for companies there, building companies there, and then he returned here back to Amarillo to raise a family and lead his family's oil and gas business. Today, Jason is the president of Pantera Energy Company, but he's also very involved in the community. He's been a past president of Center City of Amarillo, an executive member of the Amarillo Area Foundation, and today he's the president of Amarillo Matters. That's a political action committee that's focused on local elections and issues that impact Amarillo's future. So we talk about all that stuff in the interview, including Prop A, the Civic Center Redevelopment Bond that's on the ballot November 3rd, which is coming up very soon. So here's Jason Herrick. Jason Herrick, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know we've got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, you you have an interesting work history. You're involved in a lot of interesting stuff. But the question I like to start with with every guest is like, how did you end up here? So what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? Well, I did. I was raised here, at least. I went to Amarillo High. Um, of course, I, I was friends with your wife, you know, and yeah. I, was, I remember, of course, we were we were kind of like, uh, man, who's she dating this older guy? This is just kind of well, crazy. Well, older yeah. by a year. I mean, well, yeah. That yeah. much older. <laughs> but, um, so I went to high school here, but we came here because of my dad's work. So I was born in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, he worked for Sun Oil Company down there, and then we got transferred to Oklahoma City, worked for Texas Oil and Gas, um, was with Delhi and Dallas for a little while, and, and sometime we uh, moved up here, and he took over for a, a company that was called Search Drilling Company. So we moved to Amarillo, and he ran the office here for that, and then a few years after that started his own business. And so we've been here since then. So grew up here in Amarillo and uh, went to high school here and everything. So Did you go away for college? I did. So I went off to college. I went to Texas A&M University, um, went there, got an engineering degree from A&M. And after that, I went to work for a company called Anderson Consulting. Uh, that's why I got to out of, out of school. Anderson at the time was uh, affiliated, affiliated at least with Anderson, Arthur Anderson, the mm-hmm. big six accounting firm. And so I was there kind of at a time when they were in the middle of, of moving. Anderson Consulting became uh, Accenture right. at one point. I was there during that kind of transition time. And with them, I worked, um, I moved to Dallas. I worked uh, for a different couple of different places. I was at Sitco Petroleum in Tulsa for a while, for almost almost two years, um, doing work with them. And then I went to uh, Mrs. Smith's Bakeries, actually, in uh, Suwannee, Georgia, for a while. So I had gone from processing 
propanes and ethanes and and hydrocarbons to milk and sugar and <laughs> different things. Did that <laughs> still fit within like your engineering training? I mean, was that a Yeah, we were doing a lot of systems implementation. Okay. So this was the time um if you're this was everybody getting prepped for the Y2K Exactly. uh piece, right? So all these companies were trying to put in big enterprise systems to take over their their stuff so that their computer systems wouldn't blow up. So I was on the process side of taking everybody's current processes and somehow kind of translating it into this new uh, system that they were going to put in place. So all that was kind of going on at the time. So it was some use of what we were doing, but it was certainly much, much more specialized and probably more IT-ish than I, than we than I was trained to do for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, did you have like a career path planned out having been an engineer, having grown up with a dad who was in the petroleum industry? I mean, did you want to end up in a bakery, you know, working with that sort of process? Or did you want to end up, you know, doing something? In yeah, the classic or? industrial engineer is working like in a plant scenario. You're trying to think, make things more efficient and you're uh, doing time studies and you're uh, trying to get these things kind of working. And I was really became kind of a expert on materials management and how to purchase products in timely fashions, and which was fun when we were doing Mrs. Smith's bakeries because, you know, eggs and milk and things all expire at some point. Yeah, so you exactly. Really, you really had to plan for what those things were. I was the most popular when we were living at that time in Dallas. I had three roommates and Mrs. Smith sent me a whole case of pies for Christmas that year. So I was the most definitely the popular roommate for that month uh, when we did that. So I know it, at some point you ended up uh, doing some work uh, that had application in like Amsterdam and mm, yeah. London and stuff like that. How did you? How did that happen? So I, w- even when I was with with Anderson, um, as they became Accenture, I, I really wanted to work overseas. Mm-hmm. I had been angling to do that. I had a position lined up within that company to to maybe go to Frankfurt to work on the DAX uh, German Stock Exchange. Um, but an opportunity came up. It was a mentor of mine, really, from A and M, who had a company in Dallas. And I was catching up with him, and he said, hey, we're about to be purchased by a new startup company, and you ought to really check in with them and go go talk with them. And so I, I did and ended up taking that job, and it was with a small company called E2I, startup company. And there was a bunch of companies at the time. Um, some people that were in that business will remember them. There was a Scient and a Viant and a Razorfish, and they were they were all companies. And what we were trying to do was connect people's old systems with these new enterprise systems they're putting in for Y2K, right? So, but they still need to run an inventory system or something else that they had on there, and they had to talk with each other. So we were kind of that specialty niche company to do that. And we wanted to be the ones that were the first on mainland Europe. So okay. we based ourselves in Amsterdam. I was employee number four of that company and moved to Amsterdam and moved furniture into our office. And we ultimately bought my friend's company in Dallas. We ex- execute that um, transaction. And we op- opened offices in London. And we had the office in Amsterdam, obviously, in Dallas. We opened one in New York and in Seattle. So a lot of growth and a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, I was mostly working for ING Bank, actually. Okay. There was a, one of the big Dutch banks at the time, and we were, again, putting like a purchasing system in for them um, while I was over there. Where did you live? I mean, where was, were you based there in Amsterdam? Or? I was based in Amsterdam, lived in 
downtown Amsterdam. I was on the Brouwers Grot. Okay. So just a little short walk from the central train station. Incredible experience. Did you ride a bike everywhere? I had a bike, uh, a yellow painted bike that said flirt on it, you know, that I picked up from a friend or something like that. But it was good because I could pick it out of the lineup. If you've been exactly. there, it's... I, yeah, there everybody's are bikes, got black bikes. Uh, and Black yeah. bikes everywhere, stacked up everywhere. So I, I could at least identify by most of the time. But really, really fun experience. I got to learn a lot about operating both in a different culture, a different environment. We were on a very international project, so English was spoken, but I did learn Dutch while I was there to help get around while I was while I was Which there. Which has a lot of overflow with English. Like it's one of those languages that kind of feeds into the Germanic languages, and yeah. and you can understand some things a little bit easier than you got to get a real good guttural yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, back of the you throat. Know, back of the throat for sure. How so. long did you live there? Uh, it ended up being almost two years. Okay, uh, by the end of it, and while I was there, my dad ended up having a heart attack. So they were supposed to come visit. Uh, my dad's fine, by the way. He survived. He's in, in great shape right now. But that's, that fall, they were supposed to come visit. He had a heart attack, and then we had to push that trip to the, to the spring. When they ultimately came over, um, he and I had a great conversation. We sat down, and, and uh, you know, he said, well, have you ever thought about coming back to work at Pantera, which is our, the, his, the company that he started okay. in 1982? I said, well, I have thought about it some, um, but maybe the, maybe we should talk about it more. And we spent about the next four or five months really talking about what that looked like. It was good timing also. I mean, we were also in the middle of the bubble bursting on the IT world, right? right? So that Dallas uh, version of our company was not going well. Uh, we were doing great in Europe, actually, but you know, it, it seemed like it was the right time to to change anyway. I wanted to get back to the United States because by this time, I had become. I was engaged to my wife, okay. my now wife, um, and she was at um, her fourth year of medical school in Dallas at at UT Southwestern. So that's quite a long distance relationship. <laughs> so we were we were pulling off a long distance relationship for sure. It was it was interesting because when she would call and she was, I, it would be you know in the middle of the night for me, but she's mm-hmm. going to work at eight a.m. or vice versa kind of thing. So the timing was always difficult to have. This is before you could Facetime each other. Yeah, right? no Facetime. Yeah, that's right. So um, I, one thing I'm interested in is you you have a lot of people who you know go to, into another culture, go to Europe, get outside the United States, uh, and it's a learning experience, especially for people that maybe have never left Amarillo or have never left Texas or their their cultural you know, knowledge is very limited. And there's a lot of, a lot of understanding of where you came from once you get out of that place that you came from. I wonder if, if living there, you know, opened your eyes to anything, maybe helped you understand what you missed most about here or, or about the American culture, any of that stuff. Yeah, there, there was a lot of that. You, you, there is an element, and I had some great friends that were there, I had some great Dutch friends that were there, and expatriates that were all living among there, and we got to be great friends. But there is an element that you do miss of your community. You never are quite all the way in. The Dutch had a phrase they called gezellig, and it was basically this community feeling. So they were very tight-knit, very tight-knit community, very family-oriented, tight, comfortable situation. They, they, they really thrive on that. And that was something I found myself really missing hmm. uh, while I was there because I just didn't have all of those tight connections that were there. So we, it was a great place to be for a while. We got to do a lot of traveling. I mean, Amsterdam's a great place to to travel out of. So we got. Well, it's to, an hour's flight it, away from everything's an hour flight. Right? They had all those those 
jet, you know, companies like EasyJet. Yeah. So you could get a eighty dollar round trip, you know, ticket to to Lisbon, you know, for the weekend. So we, yeah, we would do a lot of those little trips. So it was a great chance to do some of that. But you do miss ultimately all of those comfortable community things that you that you have and that you grow up in, and it, it, you start to realize that really is part of your fiber. Okay. You know. So is, was that, you know, obviously your dad had a business, um, you know, it's working in a family business is, is a draw for a lot of people and you were engaged and you, you missed that fiber, you know, was, was all of that kind of factoring into the return to Amarillo or is that something that maybe like, did you resist coming back to the place that you grew up having gone far away and, and done a lot of things like you had? Yeah, I thought I would. It's funny when I told my uh, wife, you know, I said, you know, I'm, I think, I think I'm thinking about moving back to Amarillo. She said, whoa, 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 that was not part of the deal. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, but I do think it all kind of worked itself. I mean, maybe things just work out as they should anyway. And it was an opportunity. I was feeling like it was time to come back. And the, the opportunity was there to do that. Uh, the timing was good on both sides, both the company that I was with and the opportunity to come and do something with a, with a family business at a time when my dad was looking at how does this change and how do we do family planning? Yeah, exactly. Because I have had a health event at that point. So um, all those things kind of worked worked together to say, yeah, this is the right time to come back and try to make a living in Amarillo. Did Amarillo feel different having come back as an adult? It does feel different, um, and it has. I, I would agree with that. I, I think, honestly, as I look back now, and I didn't appreciate the time, I probably was – you're almost I think you're really in your bubble when you're younger and, mm-hmm. and everything's kind of your little area around what might have been Emerald High or, or something like that. And and at least when you come back, I, I feel like um you do get to see the better the more the breadth of what the whole town really is. And you don't appreciate that, I think, enough when you're younger and everything's mm-hmm. kind of in your circle until you're kind of back and, and really your circle now is expanded. And and you kind of see what the rest of the rest of the city has to offer. What year did you come back? So I came back actually about a month before September eleventh, two thousand one. Okay. So I had just moved back from uh, overseas, which thank goodness because traveling overseas got to be really hard. Yeah, after exactly. That. And I actually moved back to Dallas at that point, and then I would commute to Amarillo while my wife was still finishing um, her medical school and res and ultimately she did a residency also at children's hospital in Dallas. So I went back and forth for about another uh, year and a half until we moved full time to Amarillo. Okay. So that was 2000 later, 2002. And I, I know you've been super involved in a lot of stuff related to Amarillo since you got back here, but I, before we get to that point, I'd, I'd like to talk about being in, you know, petroleum world and yeah. energy and all that stuff, which obviously is part of Amarillo's fabric and has been, you know, for almost 100 years now. But the last 15 years have been tumultuous, you know, to <laughs> say the least. Um, so tell me tell me about, like, taking over a family business and it being a business that does that kind of thing and some of the stuff that you've you've had to deal with. Yeah, so when I came back to Pantera, um, again there was only there was only really three employees. It was it was my dad, a, a landman, and and accounting, and we they kind of handled those things. We do have we've had two partners, still partners with us still to this day. Uh, Rick Leverage who had Born Leverage Pipe and Supply in Pampa, and Joe and Jackie Curtis that had Curtis Well Service, and we had partnered up and 
Pantera really handles the operations part of that. So we handled the engineering and the land and the accounting pieces of that. Jackie, okay. Joe and Jackie had a roustabout service company, well service company. Rick had pipe to bring to it. So it's been a, it's a great partnership, really put together on a handshake, no formal documents really at the time. And we operated at that time about 90 wells and just had the the really the three employees there in the office. So I came back and moved into that. And I spent really the first year and a half pumping wells. I mean, I, I just needed to go learn the business. Right. So, I mean, I really just, I went to the field every day. And that's, that's why that September 11th is so strong in my mind, because I had pulled into Pampa that morning, um, you, you know, for, for work when all this stuff kind of started to happen. But um, we really just spent time trying to learn how wells were producing and all those types of things. And then slowly started coming back and um, really trying to build our business through acquisitions going out and looking for those. And some of those were applicable to what I'd done before because of the financials and the other pieces and the administrative parts of those things, and then trying to apply those into a petroleum business. But it is a fascinating business. It's been a lot of fun. I've gotten to learn an incredible amount. I think it's it's a, it's a an industry that does not probably get its full due for what um, it's been able to do for kind of the general populace to really raise our level um, the, the levels that we live at today. Yeah. I, I think it's, we, we don't give probably enough credit to um, our, our energy independence that has allowed us to have cheap, uh, plentiful energy to be able to turn lights on and really grow the rest of our economy. And continuing to do that is very important. We focus mostly on natural gas as a company. So uh, we're mostly a natural gas company. And so you know, that is going into the electricity, it's going into heating your homes, it's going into lots of industrial uses. So um, that it's been a fun business to be a part of. And part of the reason it's fun is because everybody has an opinion about it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. When you, when you are getting your, your prices posted on the corner, you know, at the gasoline station, I mean, everybody knows what's what's going on with your business to some degree. So it's really fascinating to be in, in just the various sides of that business, um, starting on the on the upstream side of where we are to all the way to the, what's at the retail. The the energy world is one that's always changing in that, you know, our, our society at this point is in a, a constant search for like newer or more efficient types of energies. We're looking at wind energy. We're talking about solar and, and you're still, you know, pulling it out of the ground. Are you, are you always like doing this with an eye to the future, like how it might shift, you know, in the next 10 to 12, 20 years? Uh, and and try I mean because you're trying to run a business and sustain a business while you know like all these other options are trying to replace the business that you do. I mean, how do you deal with that just on a, a planning basis? It's an interesting business because there are so many things that are out of your control. Mm-hmm. You know, when you'd be sitting there and you think you're doing everything kind of fine, and all of a sudden Saudi Arabia decides they're going to go flood the market with with oil, and it right. just changes everything up. You know. Um, or you start saying, hey, what are going to be the long-term implications of electric vehicle service for down the road, and what does that mean? You know, that's a that's a broad, big conversation that um, you can, I think, distract you from kind of the day-to-day of, you know, we, we have a job of, of getting things from point A to point B and finding new resources and doing those types of things. And when you're in a commodity business, and we're not unlike – all the commodity businesses that are here in the in the Texas Panhandle. I mean, you just always have that. The revenue side of your business is just always in flux. You can do a lot of things to control your expenses, but it's, you know, you, some some level of the revenue is a little bit out of your yeah, a little exactly. bit out of your control. So you do have to be very mindful as you plan how you plan projects, how you go forward with things about 
what are the um, expectations that you have for what those those are going to be. Uh, and I do believe that there's a long future for providing a lot of sources of electricity to a growing world. And at the end of the day, the hydrocarbon is still the most efficient delivery mechanism for the amount of energy that you get. I mean, even when we talk about electricity, for the most part, electricity today is being generated by hydrocarbon. Mm -hmm. Um, So we still have to have those things available in a world that goes forward. We have to do them better. Um, We have to do them more sensitive. We have to be very mindful of what we're doing as a business for sure. Um, but the necessity for it is still very, very real, and we need to continue to encourage that development so that we do not take steps backwards. I mean, the, the worst thing that we could do, and I worry about some of the things that are going on um, policy-wise and even in a California, is if you start really regulating one business out, um, what gets left behind, that retail market, that w- what it costs to really – deliver electricity could, can really be impactful on, on your ability to do business at all. And that's going to affect all levels of, of, of business across the country. So we, we have to be really careful about how we uh, go forward with those things and make sure we're trying to make sure all markets can kind of come online. Okay. And you mentioned how, you know, how central the, the energy world was to just the way that we live life. Um, and, and that especially applies here in the panhandle where, you know, from the discovery of oil back in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, the, the families that benefited from a lot of that, you know, have become integral to this culture that we live in and to helping build Amarillo up. And it's it's so much a part of our story. Um, I, I wonder if living in this place and knowing that history where you have these big names like the Harringtons, you know, and the Bivens family that have invested so much of that into Amarillo, um, being in a business that is so central to Amarillo, if, if that has given you any insight about you know, what this place is about. It really has, actually. So what's interesting about the properties that, that we own now, we, we own properties really. Um, so we, we started off with about 90 properties. We now have properties all the way from you know, Wheeler County up into Kansas. We operate about 2,200 wells okay. today mostly through different acquisitions. But particularly that first um, group that we bought, those were the old Hagee, Harrington, and Marsh gas pro- uh, wells that okay. were out in our, our field. So we have lots of records um, from Don Harrington's uh, background of, of, of notes that he had on all yeah. of these things. And um, it, it's really, and then even, even the other properties that we've bought along the way, I mean, a lot of the, the early Shamrock properties, some, some, there's a lot of history Uh, that went into this area um, that I do feel that we are carrying a mantle for at this point. And I think that's a fair way to put it because um, we have an amazing history in this, this uh, town as far as oil and gas exploration development goes. And I will, I will tell you, Hagee, Harrington, Marsh, when you get into their records and their agreements, they were some of the smartest, most creative guys that were out there and their partnership didn't even really last that long ultimately. Hmm. Um, but they had some inc- they they did some really forward thinking um, items that that really was right at the infancy of the business and it just wasn't being done at the time. So it's a we had a we have a really strong history of folks and and I think the other thing that we that established um, for this area is people took their resources at that time and they did plug them back into the into the community. Right, I mean that's a pretty amazing thing in itself that. 
not only did they have great success in business and do some amazing things, uh, do some things that weren't being done anywhere in the country, um, but then when those things were successful, they plugged that back into our community and, and brought right. the entire community up. So it's a it's a it's big shoes to fill for sure. Well, and and that that makes a good segue to uh, some of the other stuff you're doing outside the business because I know that you've been involved in a lot of nonprofit work, a lot of reinvestment, I guess, with your personal time, whatever, in the Amarillo community. Uh, I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Just, you know, not everybody who comes in here um, from overseas, starts working in a family business, you know, has kids, has a young family, and you're you're just digging into all that stuff, trying to, to make a living. Not everybody will just like start volunteering and, and get involved on boards and do all that kind of reinvestment. But you did, and I wonder why like that was part of part of your mindset. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like I baby stepped uh, a little along the way, I, um, and I've just gotten more passionate about it as we've kind of moved along through the years. Maybe I, when I first came back, I wanted to get involved in the Don Harrington Discovery Center, mm-hmm. and and partly because well, I loved what they were doing. We had kids at that age that were you know perfect for going up there. And I was a science guide out there for two years when I was in high school. So okay. I had this kind of connection from going all the way back to doing dinosaur tours and doing the electric shows right. out there at the Don Harrington Discovery Center. So I just started getting involved there. And it's funny how um, those sometimes they just kind of lead to the next things along the way. And that led to getting, you know, doing some stuff with Center City. I've been on the Emerald Area Foundation board. And so lots of different interesting projects that have come up along the way and it, and it feels like um, they've kind of built on each other honestly over the years of what's the next thing that we can find that we can go do and so it, it's been fun I know that um, you've you've been involved with Emerald matters and and that's a group that has that came together a few years ago and has really been instrumental in bringing stuff like the vet school and some of the big projects that that are benefiting Amarillo. And I, I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit about that, because that's one of those things that a lot of people maybe have heard of. If they have, it might be like information that's not true, or it might be rumors, or you know, stuff that they think is really positive, yeah. if they've heard of it at all. And I, I wonder if you, you know, could just kind of explain how it came about, what it is. Yeah, what I found as we were getting into... I, th- I think what I've been attracted to is doing some really complex long-term projects for the city. And, and I guess maybe going back even further, I started looking at what successful cities kind of did. And if and by success, I was defining it really as what does it look like from a quality of life standpoint? When, when people say, this is a highly rated quality of life city, what does that mean exactly? And I had looked at you know, maybe that top 10 and, and really tried to narrow it down to cities that were our size and cities that were not in a metropolitan area, mm-hmm. so, you know, kind of thing. So I, just for example, I mean, I looked really specifically at like a Dayton, Ohio, it's about 150,000 people, a Birmingham, Alabama, it's about 200,000, uh, a Lexington, Kentucky, it's about 300,000. And I was trying, to, we we're trying to see what are the things that make people really love being in those particular cities. They're always highly rated as wonderful places to live. I kind of reverse engineer that. Rever- using your- and so then how do you recreate that yeah. in your town? And, you know, it's funny, there was lots of things that were actually really some true commonality to it. There was always, it seems like, higher education. I mean, University of Kentucky is obviously in Lexington, but they also had seven other institutions of higher education. Okay. 
in Birmingham, they have University of Alabama, Birmingham, one of their university, one of the University of Alabama deals, but they also have the medical school and the dental school. Um, they, they have two other uh, or three other private institutions of higher learning there. Um, Dayton had Wright State and Dayton uh, University, as well as the largest community college in the country, Sinclair. Wow. Okay. So, and all of those had really high levels of, high, of education. So in Lexington, 40% of the population has a higher education degree. They have incredible parks. Um, their park systems are, are, are massive. In, in Birmingham, they have a 1,600-acre park, you know, all together. And then Lexington has like 192-type parks through there. But they also, that ties into, they've been able to track specific in- industries. They have strong industries. They're different in all those different places. By the way, they all have a minor league ball well, <laughs> ball team at all of them enough. with a with a ballpark in the middle. They all have a convention center and they have an arena and they have all the things those types of th- you start seeing commonalities, I guess ultimately. So so back to the nature of the question is to to find those things and to start to implement those things, they're really long-term pieces and I, and I don't know that we can expect a city council person that gets elected for two years to be able to tackle some of these things that are honestly four, eight, 10, yeah. 20 year projects. Because they are that way. Those cities, because of decisions made, they were made in the nineties or in the, yeah. Two- Absolutely. Investments that were made then, you know, and, and those things take a really long time to go put into place and you can't just, Worry about okay. Well, we'll the we'll hope that the city council can kind. Of, you have to have some sort of structure in place to start working on longer term projects, kind of deal. And so that's really what we what we started the concept of Emerald Matters around was. Look, I mean, yes, we have to have strong leadership. Yes, we have to have people in place that are that are good with big budgets and finances and can make decisions. But maybe more importantly is what are going to be the priorities for a community if we want to get from point A to point B? And how do we start to work those down the long term? And what we found was, you know, as a city, we probably just weren't doing enough on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had been talking about the text dot loop project for 40 years, you know, kind of deal. In the meantime, Lubbock builds a whole yeah, loop exactly. and it's done. And And how did they do it? Well, they had the right people in the right place at the right time. They had a, you know, they they had people that were serving on the TxDOT committee. They had a governor that was in place that was from there that understood their issues. They were, they were able to get those things done. And we weren't doing that. Amarillo's not doing that. We didn't have people that were, we used to, we used to have people that were serving on higher education board and people from the area that did those things. And we were in tune with the opportunities that, are, that were out there, but we just, we haven't in a long time. And so I, I think we felt like that there needed to be some effort to try to think about what those things are that can get us to another level we want to be at. How do we get the leadership in place to, to take us, to help take us there, but maybe more important, and then to hold them accountable for that, by the way, so that we can make mm-hmm. sure we get there. Um, but then also be working on these bigger projects that, frankly, are just kind of outside the system, like a Texas Tech. You know, we got to that project, and, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it was almost a dead on. We decided, hey, I actually got a call from a guy down in Austin, Randy Lee. He was a, uh, one of the lobbyists down there. He said, man, this thing really needs some work. Somebody from the community is going to have to go do this. I was like, well, why are you calling us? You know, I don't, we didn't even know about it. He, he had actually called... Uh, the Emerald Area Foundation, they kind of pointed it over to us. And they said, well, we, we talked about it and said, you know, this is something we need to go do. Well, this is what the point. So we 
hired him. I went down there for several, that entire session. This was two sessions ago now. And it turned out to be incredible timing because Texas Tech actually got shut down in the middle of that. So Bob Duncan wasn't able to talk about it. Um, the chancellor wasn't able to. There was a lot of politics that were going on. Mm-hmm. And somebody just needed to be an advocate for the project. So we printed up our white papers, and we went and talked to all the reps and the, and the senators. And um, again, there was lots of politics that were going on behind the scenes. But ultimately, we were able to keep that first little bit of dollars into that budget that allowed them to do the full plan that then allowed us to come back the next session. Um, and Bob Duncan is the one who had called me. He said, man, after you guys did this, I, I'd really like you to head up the leadership committee for the city of Amarillo. Um, and he was the chancellor, of course, at Tech at the time, former senator, which is hard to say no to, by the way, yeah. um, if somebody like that calls. But I said, Bob, I'm a, I am not the right guy. I don't know anything about animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm in the oil and gas business. I'm not qualified for this. And I'm an Aggie, by the way. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure I should be speaking on this. And to his credit, you know, he said, look, that makes you the perfect person. We're really looking. This is a community project. This is a project for Amarillo. We need somebody that can talk about those aspects of it. And so we spent the next two years raising the money uh, for the project, going back to the legislature and trying to get it put through for an operational budget, and ultimately did that. And you know, I think we're going to look up, and that's going to be one of those projects. And again, you look back at the whole span of that, that's a seven, eight-year time frame, right, mm-hmm. to get yeah. from point A to point B. It's another four years before we get a full school. But but what does that mean? I mean, we're going to have 120 highly paid jobs. I mean, that's the staff and the admin, professors that are coming in right. from all – very smart people coming in to work on incredible projects like cancer research – that I think is going to be really impactful. They're coming in to do those things. We're going to add 240 students that are in there doing their work to it. On top of that, we already have businesses that are now saying, I want to be associated with the research and development that's going on at this incredible place where we have a vet school and a pharmacy school and a, and a medical school all on the same campus. Yeah. And you, again, it takes, um, and those are things to talk about in abstract. And when we're talking about them eight years ago, it's hard to even imagine what those dominoes would be. And frankly, I didn't, we didn't know what the dominoes would be. You just kind of take the position of, we just need to do a little bit more, keep it going, try to knock down the things that come up when they come up and try to go on to the next thing. And, and, and hopefully you get to the end of that project and you've got something that you can look at and say, well, we got that done. And it led to a lot of new jobs that didn't exist in this town before it led to a whole new set of businesses and a, and a you know a new arrow in the quiver for the emerald economic development corporation to go attract businesses here that they didn't have before right so it almost becomes like a gateway project it becomes it's a gateway. not we're not done because we got this vet school like that opens the door to a lot of other things and and that's the that's the real key to it right is what are things that can really Again, you're trying to the, you're trying to keep the big picture in the mind, and the big picture is how do we create a place where businesses want to come work, where people like I, I mean I've been on the on the on the, the hiring side a lot of times too, where we're trying to attract a talented person to come from Dallas to move to Amarillo, Texas, and we're in a specialty business. There's just not a lot of you know oil and gas specific folks here. So I've had to go out and and bring those folks in. 
And the you know this is the things that people are asking for. Yeah. <laughs> well, where where are my kids going to go to school? Schools are obviously important. What are the education deals? Where's my spouse going to work? Yeah. You know, this is no longer just you got to hire the 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 husband of the house is going to come up and then bring the family. Both of them are going to need to probably find jobs, and so you need to have a lot of opportunity for people to go do that, and you need to be able to offer some quality of life elements, frankly, too that. Um, that's what brings uh, people to this town. It's what brings businesses to this town for sure um, who say, I want to relocate my business from XYZ uh, community to bring it here. But you also need to attract good talent um, that will come here. And all of those things start to do that. Um, we're, you know, if we're, we're bringing in a, a new professor to work at the vet school. Where does their wife work? Well, hopefully, maybe it's one of these businesses that's on the side doing yeah. research, you know, uh, or something along those lines. So it all kind of feeds a little bit on itself. Okay, and so you know, you brought up the quality of life issue. I know that Amarillo Matters is um, uh, a political action committee that does support the the Civic Center plan. You know, which people are voting on right now. We'll be voting on uh, November third, and you've personally been very vocal you know, on social media, talking about that and advocating about that, you know, which I, I know is probably a stretch for you. You're not, you're not always somebody out there doing that. Right. But uh, I, I wonder if you could tell me, like, why, why this is one of the projects that, that you've really gotten behind just as an individual. Yeah, so our Civic Center is kind of the, a piece of the puzzle. And again, it didn't all start with this proposal, right? It goes all the way back you know, 2004 is when we were doing a downtown strategic action committee that, again, was pulled into even at that point to talk about, well, what can we do to revitalize a dying downtown, mm -hmm. you know, and lots of steps were laid out kind of along the way. And again, you kind of just start trying to walk that road to try to make things start to happen. And when we were trying to talk about we need to be able to attract more convention business to this town. The first thing they said is, well, we need a hotel. I mean, if you're a convention planner, your number one thing is besides the space and you need some space, but I'm going to tell you, they're going to look for a hotel that they can walk across the street to go to that convention right. with. Right. And so we had to find some way to go get a hotel, somebody to invest in a hotel there. And by the way, we went out and asked and ran an RFE process and everybody said, no, wow. <laughs> we didn't get any responses back. Um, and so we had to change the plan, and the plan became, okay, well, what if we have some sort of demand driver across the street, like a ballpark, that will bring so many people downtown to go do that? Would that entice you to go put your own private money into a hotel? And that became what was ultimately this, that whole proposal that went forward was the, the ballpark across the street, um, the hotel um, you know, from private dollars to go get invested there, but all of that with the greater purpose of we need to be able to offer convention space so that we can bring more revenue into our town. And always, I think the next part of the project was, well, we've got to do some renovations to our convention space, and ultimately we need to do some renovations to our arena and so there's been other proposals along the way. We tried to – there was a proposal at first just to do the convention space that failed on a bond. And I think the answer was really people said, well, that's fine, but I really want someplace to watch concerts and go to arena. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what I'm doing it for, right? So that changed up a little bit. Um, so so now it was like, well, we've got to propose something that's really encompassing of everything and and try to get that to the voters at that point. And so – yeah, I I, I really do believe that this is um, continues what's already been started that uh, really allows us as a city 
um, to not only attract more businesses to come, but more importantly, provide some amount of quality of life for its residents so that we can all kind of say, hey, we've got great concerts here. We have uh, professional teams that are playing here. And we're doing those things, um, again, going back to, well, what is a town like Dayton doing? What's a town mm-hmm. like Birmingham doing? What's a town like Lexington doing? Well, Birmingham right now is doing a $125 million renovation of their arena. Okay. Um, they, they have an arena there. They have an attached convention space to it. Um, theirs is going to open sometime in 21. I say that, that other communities are not standing still. And so my always fear was, and continues to be if we don't um, do projects like this, is that at some point that just kind of – you can no longer attract in a very competitive space – uh, those conventions that actually bring revenue to your town from outside. You need to bring outside dollars in, right? That's where our sales tax really benefits from. So you got to bring these outside projects in. If you're not drawing those in, I think you're on that slow decline to where all you can really have is peddler shows, trade shows. You're, you're really just renting meeting space to the people that are inside. And, and that's not a value-added proposition, you know, for our, right. for our community. So you need investment. You need to stay up with the times. You need to continue to be competitive for events. We need to keep the events that we have. And so when you lay all that out, and we spent, I mean, it was almost 18 months and uh, really specific conversations with Populous and HVS, both companies that do these all over the country. They've done, Populous has done 3,000 of these projects and said, well, what what do we need to do? What can we do? Where will we fall in the market to go do this? And, and this was the result of almost 18 months of work to say, well, here's the plan that puts Amarillo as competitive. Mm-hmm. And if, if you want to keep keep going, then this is the next next step in that plan. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad the voters will get a chance to take a look at it and, and uh, decide something. And, and I guess the, the, the bad luck of the whole thing is that the chance to decide on this, you know, it's happening – during a pandemic, you know, during a year that has brought so much uncertainty, economic uncertainty, health uncertainty, all those things. And is, is that, is that bad luck, you know, just that it happened now and, and we're making this big decision for our future and it's got all this other baggage attached to it. You know, I mean, are, are, are we able to look past that and, and figure that out? Yeah. 2020 is kind of bad luck in general, right? <laughs> it's just one of those, oh, what a year, uh, you know, kind of all levels of it for sure. Um, yeah. So the, the vote would have been in May. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, it was scheduled to go in May and, that obviously didn't happen, and all of the all the elections got postponed and, and moved off, and, and it made the most sense. And I think they were right; the, the city council was right in just moving it to the next true city election, which was November, which and, happens to be an election that has a lot of interest, which, you which know? is going to be a huge turnout, um, which is a big presidential election, and certainly you know really changes the dynamics of all that. But you, you're going to get a great turnout, which is which is great. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that that changed the dynamics, certainly changed the conversation. I, I do believe that we will get out of COVID. Um, I think it will happen. I think that we will um, need, that we need to be as a city thinking about what does that look like to help us come out well. Mm-hmm. And it may not be enough to just say, well, let's just stand pat for the next two years until everything's completely fixed. When people are successful, when businesses are successful, and I think to some degree when cities are successful, is when they take advantage of these times to be planning for the next phase. Yeah. And to me, this is the perfect time to be putting all those things in place for the next phase. The facility wouldn't be ready for three years from a construction side 
anyway. Uh, you'd hope you'd be through most of your COVID issues, and you hope you can take advantage of um, the, the maybe the only, the good side out of this is that financial finances are, are uh, rates municipal bond rates are all time low, so you can save a lot of money on your bond rate. But maybe you know the biggest message probably out of that is um, there are a lot of external factors, of course, going into the decisions people are making right now, and I completely understand them. I do think we have to cont- again taking the bigger picture. Uh, there are going to be business cycles, and there's going to be cycles for our town, and there's going to be commodity cycles. But if we're thinking about in the long term, where do we want Amarillo to land in 8 and 10 and 15 years, then these are the steps that we really have to be taking now in order to be at a place we want to be in 10 or 15 years from now. And and you, you I don't know that you can really afford to to just put everything on hold, even in times of, of, of somewhat, you know, of crisis or even of, you know, for certainly a downturn. And I think it, it, it was a conversation I had uh, two or three episodes ago with Paul Matney, um, who said that the original Civic Center was built, funded, that all happened in the wake of the closure of the airbase, you know, which was the thing that back then people said, Emerald's done. We're, we're over. This is going to kill our town because it took, you know, thousands and thousands of people and businesses out of the area. And yet we have the Civic Center now, 50 years later, because of that decision. Yeah. Interesting cycle of history, right? Yeah. Of, yeah. Of, uh, and again, I, th- I think that's an example of, I mean, there are times that come along that you really have to just kind of, you know, suck it up as a community and say, you know, we do have to come together at some point and do these things. And, and I, I think that's true of a lot of items, honestly, in community. Um, you know, not everything. I think about that in parks, too. I mean, when we think about our city parks, I mean, they are not revenue generators for our city, but they are important for our city. And we need to have access for people to, to go to. And you can't just not prioritize things be, because those things. I, I'll tell you, I think one of the biggest mistakes I don't know if you remember this, but remember when uh, we had our drought that happened in maybe 14 or 15, and mm-hmm. we decided as a city to, uh, with Thompson Park, they, they didn't water those trees for. Yeah, yeah. And we lost 100-year-old elm trees in yep. there over what I think was you know somewhat of a short-term decision about, well, we need to do this right now because this is what we're in. And I do think sometimes you have to take a little bit of a step back and say, and there's been a lot of investment in this. There's been a lot of time put in this. There's a we have a place we want to go. We want to have a nice place for it. So sometimes you have to make those sacrifices, put that into your budget of doing some things because you, you, the the alternative is is way worse. Yeah. You know? And and there is there there really is an opportunity cost of doing nothing. And and that's something we also all have to keep in mind. It is not free. And it's a false narrative if we say, well, if I if I don't if I don't do these types of things, if I don't do a civic center project or whatever the next project is, that there won't be any cost to me. There can still be a cost. I mean, we can lose events, we can lose sales tax revenue, we can all the deferred maintenance will come to play, and so there are true costs out there that we you know, have to weigh all of it. Hamarillo is also sponsored this week by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist for at least 25 years, and my kid's dentist too. He's an expert on Invisalign, using that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. He does it so well, in fact, that he, well, I was going to say he now travels all over the country. I, I guess he used to. 
uh, to teach other dentists how to do this. I don't know if he's traveling during the pandemic or not. Probably not. Anyway, Eddie has my son Owen in Invisalign aligners right now, and Owen is almost at the end of the process. He's had metal braces in the past, and he is totally a fan of Invisalign. So to learn more, visit shimandental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Okay, I'm back with Jason Herrick. Jason, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection, you'll be interested in this, I'm sure you know already, but includes at least eight historical photos about the discovery of oil in the Texas Panhandle. It's also have a, they also have a full-size reproduction of Don Harrington's office, absolutely, which is one of my favorite things to look at because it's it's like an office from what the 40s or 50s or yep. something. Yep. You look at this giant desk and there's no computer on it. And you just think that's that's how business happens, you know. And as you come into that exhibit on the two sides, he has two of his old land maps. Oh um, yeah, that exactly. are on the wall that cover the old oil fields from Pampa to to Borger. And uh, some of those were in our collection of things that we got, you know, from these uh, wells we talked about earlier. So there's some great, uh, really, it's a, they have a fantastic oil and gas exhibit there. I think they did an outstanding job with it. It's a really, really uh, solid one. Well worth spending some time going through. Absolutely. A lot of interactive exhibits. I don't know that they're fully interactive right now, but um, yeah. man, there's still so much to look at there. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing. Anyway, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so this is eight straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you get to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Um, I'll start with one that I've been asking everybody over the past few months, but what's one thing that this pandemic period has revealed to you about local people? Well, interestingly, I think the pandemic um, showed us a little bit of what we always talked about that we loved our community, we enjoyed all the the people that we were around, and and in the pandemic, when some of that was taking away, taken away, I think we actually appreciated more what we used to have a little bit yeah. of that ability to kind of interact, having friends over and those types of things, and so that's been one thing for sure. The pandemic shown. I also think we have gotten to witness a little bit of a change, or maybe a roadmap is maybe even a better way to put it, but this has created a really uh, interesting communication between hospitals uh, within our community that I perceive as before were really much more in a competitive situation. Okay, yeah. And today, you know, you have BSA and you have Northwest Texas Hospital, you have Texas Tech Health Science Center, they are, and, and Regents and some other places as well, but they're, they're all having to come together for how to deal with a, a a major health crisis, right? And so they've had to share data. They've had to, I mean, they talk con- consistently across the board. How are we, you know, how are we sharing beds? How are we doing this whole thing? And that's a change. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a much different view. It's a much more community-based view. And I think as we move forward, this could be a roadmap. A, a lot of the things that my wife and I talk about is how do we – um, move healthcare forward in our community. And I think this is one of the things that we should take out as a model is their ability to communicate during this time um, should really be something that we use to go forward to make our community a really successful, have a very successful healthcare um, offering to the to our region. Um, and it will take some communication across multiple entities that would not typically do that. Right, exactly. And that, I mean, that's one of the things where we talk about diversifying the economy and quality of life issues is that that medical field, the healthcare side, 
that's what draws people here from all over the panhandle. I mean, we're the yep. medical hub for people and, um, you know, as far as Stratford and places like that. And so to have these two or multiple entities working together is going to strengthen the whole of that. Yep. And uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's just as central to the economy as natural gas and agriculture and all that stuff at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And so my wife's a, a pediatrician here in town. And so we have a lot of conversations about how do we make sure that we have really st- strong pediatric subspecialties across the board? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you do that? Well, it takes, it takes everybody kind of chipping into that, um, you know, we, for our region to really do that. You're always going to have higher level care in, a, that, in Dallas. But at the end of the day, I, I would much rather if I've got a situation where my, my child's um, getting serviced, um, you want to do that at home, right? It, yeah, it, and it's and by the way, it's a much more cost effective way to do that. So, how do you do that? It becomes with really strong partnerships between your entities that are out there to make that successful. And and I I think um, that's one of the things we'll look back on the pandemic as maybe the starts of some really interesting partnerships that could come out of that. Okay, what does this area have too much of? I think we have. And some of this I'm affected a little bit by the time of year that we're in in a election year, but we have a lot of tribalism, um, if I was to put a term around it. I, and I think it's an it is, it's not maybe necessarily unique to Amarillo, but we've reached a time where it's so easy to um, silence uh, voices I don't agree with, mm-hmm. um, whether that's through social media, um, maybe it's the loss of a of a you know, an active newspaper, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, telling stories, you know, kind of from a, from one point of view anyway. And, and so unfortunately what that means is you're kind of in a, you get in an echo chamber a little bit, Mm -hmm. I I feel like, and um, we don't have a great method and I'm at a loss sometimes for how to do it, of how to get messages kind of across um, all areas of our community or whatever that is. And, and so, and I think that's some of the drawback of kind of where we've landed as a community. I, I think it's even different than it was 25 years ago, frankly. Oh, I, I mean, I, of of when maybe we we were more, um, you know, in our teens and 20s and stuff like that. And uh, I feel like now we we have lost that ability to communicate across, you know, different ideas and and then ultimately kind of settle on the best one. It's always it's turned into. A little bit my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't agree with what my view of this, is, I mean, I'm not going to listen to what your view is, <laughs> and so I'm going forward with it. And by the way, I'm going to be ultimately opposed to the way you do it, just because it's not my way. <laughs> you know, kind exactly. of exactly. And I, I think that's dangerous. Um, I think that hurts when I think about projects that need to get be, get get done. I think about a civic center type project. You have a lot of people there saying, "Well, I would have done it this way. I would have built it with fifteen thousand seats. I would have built it with five thousand seats. I would have built it. Yeah. I would have built the arena first. I would have built the convention center first. And because but, of that one detail, I'm against the whole. thing. And because of that detail, I'm against the whole thing. And and what have we become if that becomes the I've always liked the phrase, you know, the, the enemy of, of good is perfect, right? right? It's very hard to get to a perfect proposal for everybody. But if you don't have some amount of, I'm going to cross some lines here, and I'm going to have these discussions and, and be able to have those open discussions without it immediately being, well, you're, you're just wrong, you know, or you're just 
there is no there is no other way. It's it's a little dangerous, I think, and it it gets very hard. It gets very hard to do projects, okay. which I guess is my ultimate. Uh, how do we keep doing important things for our community? And uh, we've got to get better about you know getting to a compromised answer that works for just about most of the situations, even though it may not be perfect for every situation. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? I think we're lacking right now in some trust. And I say that, um, again, maybe it's a little bit the timing of how things are right now, but I, I think we've reached a point. We have so little trust in our government officials, okay. even though we've elected them into office. But then for some reason, we kind of look at it and go, well, I'm just not going to trust them with with that part of the decision or what that may be. And and even it goes down to some other level when it's when we're sitting here saying, well, I'm not going to trust uh, the city to put out um, good numbers on COVID patients. I mean, it's clearly not, <laughs> you know, there's some that there's something, uh, and I think the problem is really trusting people's motivation is maybe my ultimate deal. I mean, I, you can be skeptical of the numbers. I don't have any problem with that, or, or certainly question them. But you, it's I have a problem when we question people's motives. That for some reason we think that they're they're doing it for some alternative purpose that we're hot, that there's something being hidden. I, I worry about that when we talk about doctors in our community. I mean, doctors in our community come out and say, "Hey, we have a problem. We have ICUs at certain percentage. We have a hospital." But and you and you say, "Well, I just don't. I just don't trust you." Well, he's in the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, what else are you? What What's else his are you going to say? He's a he's a paid you know or an epidemiologist that's here in town. He works for the health department. You know. And we still have a problem for some reason with a trust of some of those elements. And I, I you know, I always think back, you know, the old Ronald Reagan deal, the trust but verify. But I think we've lost the, we do the verify part, we don't do the trust part. There has to be some level of saying, at least I know that their motivations are they're trying to do the best for our community. Exactly. And, and let's start there and assume that everybody's trying to do their best, and there's not some sort of alternative thing that's driving what that decision was going to be, that it's, well, they must be making a ton of money over here by doing this deal, or they must be doing... I can I can pretty much assure you that that's, that is that is not why... Um, if someone wanted to make a ton of money, they probably wouldn't get into city government. There are I mean. <laughs> lots of other ways to go do that. And I, I think that's probably the worst way if you're trying yeah. to go, you know, go, make, go make some money. So th- those types of conversations, I think, are really negative. And it's, it's kind of that straw man argument, right? It's like it, it takes away from the actual discussion about what the validity of a, of a certain discussion, what it really is, you know, and, and, and the real validity, if it's talking about COVID is, well, how do we deal with that from a, from a medical standpoint, from a hospital standpoint, from a community standpoint to deal with it? And if we're if a third of your time you're talking about, well, we don't even believe the the, the city's numbers because we don't trust them to come out because they've got they want to suppress the votes or you know, whatever the reason <laughs> might be, I think we really lose an opportunity to d- focus in on the best way to go solve something or the best way to go do something at that point. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Well, I think I still describe it as one of the true um, Texas places that you can still go to. I think it's a place that's a little bit unique today for most of the population of our state because most of the population of our state lives in a suburb mm-hmm. uh, or of a big city. 
And they're all associated with, I mean, even if you live in some town, you were watching, you live in Frisco, you're watching Dallas News and you're rooting for the Texas Rangers, even though they're seven cities away, you know, kind of thing. And so we're unique in the sense that I think we're operate independently. Uh, That means that you have a huge cross-section socioeconomically across our whole city that changes lots of things about how you propose things and and do projects and do things along those lines. Um, But it also creates an incredible diversity that, frankly, I think is lacking when I talk to my friends that are in Plano. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they they all, it's all, or Frisco or something like that. Everybody fits within a certain... It's crazy, you know, and they all just, and and they've recreated a downtown, you know, that's brand new that sits out here. Yeah. And they, and so we have a... um, for us, I think we have kind of everything packaged into to a to one, um, which really gives us amazing opportunities. I think to to think about things as a as a, really as a whole, it creates unique things that other cities I don't think have to have to think about even. But for us, I think it really creates a, a different fabric for us that's actually really great. And, and we're when you think about the city, you think about the state of Texas anyway, I mean, there's not, um, when you think about the major metropolitan ones for sure, um, we're, we're a little bit unique in that sense. Yeah, there's not there's a whole not. lot of them. I mean, you might call Lubbock that to some degree too, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you know, we're, we're kind of, um, we kind of have our own unique feel here. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a cool perspective. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? You know, I, I, I loved Matney's response to Paradise too. By the way, uh, <laughs> I love the throwback. That was one of my favorites growing up, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Six Car because uh, and because uh, I think they really changed how downtown is. Cole Craven does a great job there. I like Rain because um, I think they've almost become an institution now. I think they've done a incredible job. But I, I thought about. I think the one I would say is probably OHMS. Okay. Yeah, you probably remember that. Do you remember going there when, oh, yeah. when we were? I mean, before it was a restaurant, right? <laughs> and they just had bands yep. in there. I saw the humans there. Do you remember oh, the humans? Absolutely. Yeah. So I have this affinity for it anyway, right? And I just remember the curtains hanging in there, and you kind of go in. They still had really good shepherd's pie even back <laughs> they then. Did. Though, they, you know? I know exactly. And yeah, so it I was a, just it was just a music venue. It was just a much, venue with maybe a lunch a lunch crowd sometimes. Yeah. And so it was it was so great, and I just have this. It was kind of that place you kind of went that you th- at least you know at, at that time we thought was edgy or something like that yeah. I think but um, I mean Mary and Josh Fuller they've just done, done such a great job there it's so consistent and I, they've done something I think is really hard in the restaurant business they have a really unique product at lunch and they have a really unique product at dinner and they have a pretty unique product in their bar area too. Mm-hmm. And they've somehow figured out a way to meld that all together and put out really consistent quality product. And that is very hard to do. And they've done it for a long time. Okay. Yeah. That's a good, it's a good point. What's the most underrated aspect of living here? I think it's probably the commute. Um, it's, a li- <laughs> it's a little bit back to what I was talking about. When I talk to my friends in other towns or when I just think about our situation, I mean, I can be at my office downtown and I can still catch my daughter's uh, third grade play, mm-hmm. you know, and get there and still get back to the office in a reasonable amount of time. We can stop off and have a have a drink with friends, um, you know, you get off work and have 30, 45 minutes and then go and still get home in time by six, six o'clock for dinner kind of thing. And 
I, when I when I talk to friends that are in larger towns and they've got a forty five minute commute or something like that, it just doesn't happen. I mean, no. you're spending so much time in travel mode. I mean, you can't leave work and make it over to the to the kids' show, and you you can't just meet up with friends after work for dinner because you still got an hour and a half drive once you're done with that. So, what that allows us to do is really develop relationships that I think sometimes get lost when you're in a bigger city. Um, and so that's, I think that's really one of the, it's one thing I talk about a lot when we have uh, candidates or people that are coming in as employees. I think it's, it's a real, it is a quality of life piece of it that you can um, integrate a lot of things into your, into your life that otherwise would have been lost, I think. Okay. When was the last time you went to the big Texan? It's probably been two years. I have one friend, uh, Crazy Charlie Highsmith. I'll give him a shout out. He's from Austin. But every time he comes through town, he wants to go to the Big Texans. So it's about once every couple years uh, we end up going out there and have a great time every time yeah. we're out there. But so quasi-regular, and it's probably been uh, a couple that's years. probably since more been. than most locals. Yeah, so. probably so. Okay, and when was the last time you wore cowboy boots? Well, I'm wearing them right now. Oh, okay. So, so I guess I, 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 I wear them uh, fairly frequently. I, I will give you. We have a local boot shop. If you, I mean Beck's uh, Cowboy Boots here in town, family business. They make custom made boots. They're phenomenal. It'll change your perception on wearing boots forever. They are fantastic. They're off Georgia, and he does such a fantastic job there. So. Um, if you don't think you're a boot wearer, then you might go try Beck's. You just have a bad pair of boots. <laughs> yeah, you might want to go try his because they are fantastic. Okay, well, that concludes the eight straight questions. Jason, i like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want local people to know about or experience? Um, well, I'm going to go... I'm going to go a little bit of throwback because it's always been one of my favorites, and we talked a little bit about it, but um, I I think that you need to go um, back to the Discovery Center. Okay. So I worked in the planetarium when it was there. I worked on the electric shows when I was there. It's changed a lot over the years. But I love those guys there. I think they do a great job. I was, um, you know, They've got a new director there now, but they're right. doing some fantastic work in a tough time as well. Uh, they're they're tough and it's tough in the pandemic. Tough time for hands on. Tough time for hands on deals. Um, but I think it's a really important aspect of our community to have a place that um, for both children and adults, I think, uh, to have a place where you can really focus in on um, science and some pieces of that. And I. I love what they do there, and so if you, I, I would just recommend we we went there almost every week when my kids were were little. Um, still try to go every once in a while for their big events, um, but what a great asset we have in our community! All right, Jason Herrick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Jason Herrick for the interview. Thanks to Wick Realty and Shimon Dental for sponsoring the show and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring eight straight every week. This episode and all the other episodes are edited by audio engineer Angelina Marie. If you haven't voted yet, early voting remains open until October 30th. Of course, Election Day is November 3rd. For locations, go to pottercountyvotes.com or randallcounty.com. If you'd like to join the local people who support this podcast financially, I'd invite you to visit patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Supporters of Hey Amarillo through Patreon include my executive producers Barbara and Jim Witten, Chris Elda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, Katie Linger, Jason Burr, Jess Heredia, 
Neil Nossiman, Joshua Rafe, and Ryan Pennington. This has been episode 168. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>